If you look up tea in the first cookery book that comes to hand, you'll probably find that it's unmentioned, or at most you'll find a few lines of sketchy instructions which give no ruling on several of the most important points. This is curious, not only because tea is one of the mainstays of civilization in this country, as well as in Ireland, Australia and New Zealand, but because the best manner of making it is the subject of violent disputes. That was Forrest DLG, the man behind the music in this show, reading from George Orwell's essay, A Nice Cup of Tea. I'm Lewis Bassett, and this is the Full English Podcast. In this episode, we tell the story of how English merchants traded heroin for the cup of tea and how that bitter leaf was sweetened for British palates by the work of African slaves in the Caribbean. This is a story about the British Empire and two things that are deeply synonymous with British taste, as well as England's place within this history. This is episode three on tea and sugar. It was wool and war that put English ships on the seas at the time of the enclosures. Later, slaves, tea, opium and sugar would form four deeply entwined commodities for which England and eventually Britain would build its empire. In fact, tea and sugar helped to bind Scotland with England and Wales into a single nation. But let's start with tea. And what could be more innocent than a nice cup of char? The history of tea is 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 far from something that's soothing, but it's the answer to everything. The British do two things. We um, tell you about the weather or inquire about the weather and, and we make tea. That's what we do. In times of a crisis, we just make tea. This is Seren Cherrington Hollins, a food historian and the author of A Dark History of Tea. Tea is just one of the most familiar drinks in the world. Um, so I think whilst today we sort of think of drinking tea as being quite subdued, you know, it's something you can give your grandmother, you can take it to the village fate, uh, mother's meetings, uh, church committees, you know, it's it's safe, isn't it, tea? You know, it's not like saying, oh, you know, come back and we'll have a bottle of whiskey, you know. No, tea's, tea's safe, tea's, you know, sort of insipid almost. But I think for me, what I love about that is it's got this innocent facade, but it's caused wars. It's boosted the trade in slaves and hard drugs. And it's like, and we all sit there going, would you have a nice cup of tea? And I love the fact that, you know, in amongst this murky history, that that basically tea is so dark and it's got this, this, you know, dreadful history to it. And we just all sit there and it doesn't matter what's happened. You know, you can, you know, your husband could have run off, um, you know, uh, or, or you could have lost your job. Your house is burnt down. People go, would you like a nice cup of tea? <laughs> that, that's going to solve everything. <laughs> Some folks put much reliance on politics and science. There's only one hero for me. It's praise we should be roaring, a man who thought of pouring the first boiling water onto tea. I like a nice cup of tea in the morning, for to start the day, you see. And at half past eleven, well, my idea of once upon a time, it was seen as quite dangerous, you know, especially if you were a woman, you know, I mean, you know, you can't have women sitting around spending all the housekeeping on, on tea and, um, you know, they might get ideas of, of politics and things. So tea was seen as quite a dangerous thing once upon a time. Yeah, also tea, tea was first discovered um, by Northern Europeans as a result of uh, travels. 
but travels were, were undertaken not only for curiosity, but also for commercial advantage, so, and perhaps also missionary activities. But trade routes with um, areas in Asia which had direct contact with China were sort of forged by uh, the Dutch and the Dutch East India Company in the 17th century. Britain was also a really active player in that region, but its, its main focus was in India, in the Indian Peninsula, and they didn't have so much contact, direct contact with Chinese commerce. That's Mark Manellis, who with Matthew Marga and Richard Coulton wrote a book called Empire of Tea. We'll hear from Matthew later. So travellers started writing accounts of, of seeing tea in China in the late 16th century. Um, and in the 17th century, it became more common to have British travellers coming back and writing histories of their travels, which mentioned this drink that they encountered, this hot herbal beverage, um, which was quite distinctive and, and odd. Um, and bringing back samples of it, some of which uh, people were drinking in London in the 1630s, for example. It was more, in this early stage, it was more common in, in Amsterdam and in, in Holland. And it was astonishingly expensive uh, as a result. So, in fact, one British scientist, um, Samuel Hartlib, had heard about tea, but he said, it's too expensive for me to experiment on it. I can't get any. And then eventually he got given some by a, a China merchant who had connections in, in Amsterdam and um, said, it works. I mean, you know, it definitely is a, a, a product with qualities which make a difference to, your, to the way your body feels. Because it, it had a medicinal status at this really early period. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think it's primarily people are interested in the fact that it does have these physiological properties. You know, so it is a medicine. They were also curious that it was so popular in China and so expensive. I mean, why is it so expensive? Um, and could it be as expensive in Northern Europe as well? Because then it's a really long way to China, so you need to bring back products which are small and light and really expensive. Two things combined to give tea consumption its liftoff in Britain. On the one hand, the elite and exotic nature of the drink itself made it desirable and sought after by consumers, particularly when presented in its accompanying fine China. On the other hand, the East India Company, a jointly owned enterprise with its own army whose influence on English and British taste deserves its own episode, was as ever on the lookout for new profitable income streams. The company found an immense new market with tea. You know, the East India Company, the British East India Company, is granted the monopoly on uh, trade with the region of the world called the East Indies, which, uh, and against that monopoly, in the very end of 1599. This is Matthew Malga. What Britain calls the East Indies is this enormous sector of the world. It's defined as the, as the land east of the Cape of Good Hope and west of the Straits of Magellan. And the Straits of Magellan are kind of down at the southern point of South America. So it's you know, half the globe um, that the East India Company gets you know, the, the monopoly on that trade. And of course, at that moment, no one had ever heard of tea. Um, it was more intended to be a kind of a, a fabric and spice trading company. And tea is something that the East India Company only really discovers and begins to experiment with in the, in the late 17th century. And, and even then, you know, is a little bit behind the curve, really, in, in picking up tea. Now, as Martin has implied, the Dutch East India Company sort of gets there first. There are even kind of British competitors who illegally compete with the East India Company on tea to start with. But then soon 
you know, the East India Company starts importing more and more tea. Um, And of course, what happens is that extremely quickly, the price of tea begins to fall. And so, you know, even even by 1710, there's a sense that in London, tea is being drunk quite a lot. Certainly then by the 1720s, 1730s, there's an increasing sense that it's that it's spreading around the country. The government begins to get interested in it, starts to increase taxes. Here's an opportunity for for revenue. Um, That creates a black market in tea. At the beginning, it was extremely expensive, um, which also obviously means that it's accessible only to a very small number of people. But it was also associated with with the social practices of the royal court and especially with elite women of the royal court. So tea drinking was not only super expensive, but also was the kind of thing that went on amongst elite women. And that kind of, well, it's not branding, but that um, cultural association of tea with the sociability of women and women's values and things carried on all through the late 17th century and the beginning of the 18th century. So even though men were were drinking tea, it it was still um, coloured by that uh, association. May I offer you some tea? Thank you. Cake or bread and butter? Bread and butter, please. Thank you. And um, that's an association for a sort of refinement and politeness. And in a way, you know, compared to coffee, especially tea's flavour ranges are much more subtle um, and um, you know, the, the, the flavour landscape is quite delicate and the, the appearance of the brewed tea, if, it, if it's green tea in this period or even a mixture of green and, and oolong, is a you know, delicate translucent um, product which looks beautiful in expensive porcelain for example unlike that uh, black brew which coffee is so there's all sorts of ways in which it's associated with sort of refinement and politeness and and the expense is also maintaining that and then as tea becomes cheaper and stronger it um, gets consumed in a a variety of different ways and appeals to a much wider uh, number of people there's lots of satires in that 17th and early 18th century about servants drinking their master's tea. So there's a there's a way in which the tea tea consumption sort of spreads out from the from the elite, and as tea becomes cheaper, it reaches out to a much broader audience. Once the consumption of tea drinking starts to take off, the state begins to tax it, but this creates a huge black market for tea. Tea quickly becomes one of the most smuggled commodities in the 18th century. To deal with this the state proposes to cut import duties on tea and to make up for the lost revenue with a tax on windows. The legislation in question is the Commutation Act of 1784. And the modelling, and you can still see it in in the archives, is about the degree to which um, people in houses that have different number of windows, how much tea they typically drink. Um, So one can see whether there's going to be a kind of a a, a bad impact on national revenue. Um, and the conclusion that they that they reach is that, no, it, th- this will work, this replacing of the tea revenue with a windows tax, because the assumption that they clearly arrive at is that everyone who lives in a house with windows is drinking tea by the early 1780s. So that might... There might be sectors of the population that have no fixed abode, perhaps, who who aren't drinking tea, but that's it. Tea has entered every cottage, uh, one of the one of these assessors writes. So by the 1780s, it is everywhere, which is which is different to saying that it's necessarily being drunk several times a day. That's probably not the case. You know, the preparation of of hot drinks 
is an expensive business in terms of bringing water to the boil, for example. So tea might be a drink that's being consumed in the poorest households once a day when you might have a pot of water coming to the boil over the same heat source that a family has used to cook its meal, perhaps. Yeah, the the idea that yeah, Samuel Johnson in the in the mid eighteenth century is kind of saying, "Oh, my kettle is always on," um, but I don't think that was the experience of, of of the poorest people in society. Not until the nineteenth century, at least, when having boiling water to hand becomes something which is is more easily achieved. Having solved the problem of smuggling, two other issues arose. The first was a moral panic around tea drinking. There were so many critics, and they basically said that they thought tea was going to stifle economic growth and they thought that it was going to be just basically feeding reckless behaviour and it was going to lead to a nation of lazy, work-shy individuals. And amongst the working classes, you know, tea was a complete waste of time and money. What did the working classes and women need to drink tea for? They don't need that. They needed to instead spend their money on adequate nutrition And basically, you couldn't have women being lured away from the kitchen sink uh, and, you know, and childminding by things like drinking tea. So there were real, real concerns over this. And they they really did, you know, have whole conferences on this, you know, British Medical Association, all sorts of pamphlets were circulated warning about the negative effects of tea. The second related problem was that the popularity of tea was becoming a drain on English silver, which brings us back to smuggling. Only this time, the smuggling isn't being conducted by pirates off the coast of Cornwall. It's being conducted by the state-sanctioned East India Company in China. Now, China only traded tea for silver. Um, You know, we we tried to sell China our cloths. I mean, but we have a very different climate. They had fine silks and things, and we'd got sort of very heavy uh, cloths, like sort of flannel and things. And quite frankly, it just didn't have the appeal. And so they were like, no, the only thing that we're going to trade with you is silver. But that was hard to come by in England. You know, England didn't want to let go of all that, that silver. I mean, that was one of the intense frustrations of the of the early traders, that there was nothing China wanted from Britain apart from the silver. A lot of the early voyages are experimenting with all sorts of, of commodities that they take over from England, you know, woolens and other kinds of fabrics. And they try to develop, you know, in other areas of trade in Indonesia and in India, they're trying to find stuff that they can take to China that can be exchanged for tea. But, you know... The only thing that the Chinese merchants want is silver until um, the discovery of the the value of opium in the, the later decades of the 18th century. And then suddenly the East India Company can barely contain its joy that it's got access to a, a cargo that there is demand for in China. What they discovered was that with opium, there was something they could sell them which China wanted. So they, they were effectively pushing this uh, drug onto the Chinese population um, and which a drug which creates its own demand. Uh, and, that, and that drug was available in India, another one of the places where the East India Company was active, of course, so they could grow it and manufacture it in India on an increasingly industrial scale, relatively cheaply, take it to China and sell it at a, at a higher price, high enough to pay for some of all of the tea which they wanted to take back 
to to India, but also to to England. So there's a kind of transnational trade being developed there by the East India Company. So the ships would leave England with English textiles and metals and things. They'd sell that in in India, pick up the opium um, and take it to China, uh, sell the opium in China and bring the tea back to England. And at each stage, that's an extra profit or another profit. But, you know, no one in China was particularly welcoming to the to the opium. They knew that it had a terrible effect on their population. Um, they were hostile to opium well before the opium wars. And in a way, what the the, the conflict that erupts in, in, uh, in 1840 is caused by British merchants persuading the, the government to use the navy to force the Chinese authorities to accept British traders uh, selling selling opium. You've got to understand that the India-China opium trade was really important to the British economy, and and that's the issue. Britain was making a huge, huge profit from tea importation uh, and sales. I mean, the sales on tea and the the taxation they were making a huge profit. I mean, the coffers swelled, and you know at the same time the opium addicts were were swelling as well, and so we got this sort of created this mass addiction and political instability in China. And essentially what we did as Brits was just like turn the blind eye really because it was so financially valuable to us. I guess they experienced a Britain that Britain itself wouldn't want to recognise in itself, right? (laughs) I think a Victorian Britain at that time probably would have thought of itself as, despite being a colonial power, was still kind of delivering civilization <laughs> to other places in the world. This is the scholar, Mukta Das. And so civilization means a kind of a fair-mindedness, um, you know, a kind of um, a higher ideal, right? But actually, absolutely, it was the reverse, right? There was no higher ideal around this. There was greed um, and there was a sense of um, entitlement to trade on their terms, right? No more silver We'll, we'll, we'll only pay you in X and we'll, we'll extract as much as we can. Welcome to capitalism. <laughs> you know? Welcome to extractive capitalism. <laughs> Mukta explained to me that these events continue to be a subject of shame in China. You know, there's this uh, island uh, in, in Guangzhou, which is basically all European architecture built from uh, money, from tea money, from opium money, um, from the Europeans settling in and trying to get, get trade going and, and, and enriching themselves. And so, you know, the, the actual history is very immediate. When you do talk to um, residents, it's really immediate in, in sort of their cultural history. You know, it was a really humiliating concession that was um you know imposed on this area you know it was a really um really um sharp piece of history for them to kind of digest you know there's a kind of chinese exceptionalism this kind of discourse of chinese exceptionalism which is emerging now now that china's become a, a huge economic and now geopolitical force and so this this the, the opium wars the um the con- these european concessions these kind of european cities within chinese cities are a mark of this kind of this part of history that is really difficult for them to kind of um digest and and um, move forward with and integrate into their understandings of themselves so um so, so actually even though we think of it as a historical study tea canton guangzhou um opium the opium wars uh the uh, hong kong uh leasing of hong kong the return of hong kong to china all of this is very immediate in the sense of justice and history within um china 
We really hope you're enjoying the Full English podcast. If you are and you want to show some support, then please head on over to patreon.com forward slash full English so we can make more episodes and delve deeper into the mysteries and contradictions of English food culture. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. While the British Navy were forcing the opium trade upon China in the Opium Wars, the East India Company was opening up new supply routes for tea via plantations it was establishing in the parts of India that the private company had begun to control. So it seems that there was a kind of snobbery on the part of the elite towards um, popular drinking of tea, but then that slowly became some sort of acceptance. When tea becomes British, i.e. grown in British colonies, then that argument that, that it's a, a product which is um, you know, leaking money out of the out of the economy evaporates in many respects because there are now British companies growing British tea in, in India uh, rather than just importing it from China. That's right. And there's a sense then that it becomes your patriotic duty to be buying empire teas rather than Chinese teas. It's only via the common project between Scotland and England in the form of empire that tea achieves the kind of British status that it has now. You have to remember that it's only really after World War II that Britain thinks of itself as a nation without an empire. Prior to that, what was Indian was also seen as British, and this has had lasting effects. Think about the difference between tea and wine. Even though we don't grow tea in the UK at any real scale, and even though wine from France grows far closer to the UK than tea leaves from Asia, somehow tea feels far more homely and British. And that sentiment was created in the transition from Chinese tea to Indian tea. Tea becomes British when we found the Indian plantations. And part of it's to do with the very clever Victorian marketing. Um, the Victorians were nothing if not loving nostalgia and the idea of how great Blighty was. They really did embrace fully what it was to be British and how great it was to be British. And we suddenly come out with things like imperial tea. And we have all these wonderful images of young children, you know, picking tea leaves. And it all looked so idyllic and beautiful. I mean, far cry from what it was. And we start talking about how British tea is and how, you know, tea is suddenly something that's very pure. And we do use things like pure tea. And you'll see on a lot of the old designs for tea and the tea merchants, you know, they talk about this purity and purity guaranteed and all these wonderful idyllic pictures. Well, you know, I mean, the British just loved it, you know, because this was suddenly the tea of Britain. So it's actually that point that we go from it coming across and it's rare and it's exotic and it's just for the wealthy to this being the tea of Britain. Because, you know, tea is so valuable. We've had our trials and tribulations. We've swept everything under the carpet. We've now got these Indian tea plantations, which were, were you know, I mean, they were shocking. The conditions were shocking there, but nobody knew about that because everybody's looking at the beautiful tea cards and the beautiful illustrations saying pure tea, you know, purity guaranteed. 
And we are just now thinking, well, isn't this wonderful? And we've given these wonderful tea pickers this wonderful opportunity in life, you know, and um, and we're, we're doing our bit for Britain and we're being British because we are drinking tea. And so we yet again, the great, you know, British culinary magpies swept in and um, and nicked tea and said, we'll have that. <laughs> and, uh, quite literally in some cases. In quite, quite literally. Yes, we did. The drink itself also changes. It becomes darker and stronger. And while not the first to do so, the British made tea their own by drinking it with milk and sugar. It becomes, in essence, an important cultural signifier of British nationhood, one which helped to override distinctions between England, Scotland, Wales and even Ireland to help formulate a distinctly British trait. Eventually, tea and sugar are so synonymous that demand for one spurs demand for the other. In the 18th century, tea and sugar became widely available and the English cup of tea with sugar became a crucial part of working class diets. This is Catherine Hall, a professor of history at the University College London. Sugar was a luxury item in the medieval and early modern period. In the 18th century, it becomes an item of mass consumption. And I mean, it's just extraordinary the way uh, the consumption of sugar goes up from the late 18th century into the 19th century and how sweet dishes, you know, all the, all the puddings and flans and buns and what have you become incredibly popular. The consumption of sugar that explodes across Europe and the US means that sugar is the source of such wealth for so many people and why slavery becomes so, so important in the Caribbean and in other places because white people were seen as incapable of working in the tropics. So it had to be somebody else, but it had to be for sugar because sugar was white gold. So sugar is something that starts out as a spice and becomes a kind of everyday staple. This is Pedro Scanlan. He's an expert on the Atlantic slave economy and an assistant professor at Toronto University. It was available in Europe for a very long time, uh, long before there were plantations, uh, long before enslaved Africans worked those plantations, but it was available in very small quantities. It would be something that that a very wealthy person or a, a somebody of royal blood would produce on their table to show their wealth. Padrak says that sugar was a bit like the cocaine of the 18th century, at least if there was no limit to how much cocaine you could trade. Without restrictions, the production of such a commodity could be scaled up to enormous levels. In the 18th century, just like tea, it seemed that the more you produced of the thing, the more that people wanted. And traders worked out that bringing sugar across the Atlantic was way easier than bringing it over from India, where it had been growing for centuries. It needed to be grown in the tropics. So, uh, you know, there's a certain latitude above which the sugar won't grow. And it needs a very large and very kind of concentrated workforce. Because sugar canes, if you cut them, the juice starts to ferment very quickly. Um, so unlike other crops like tobacco, and that's not to kind of, di- you know, like the, the lives of enslaved workers on tobacco plantations were horrible. But to work on a tobacco plantation was less dangerous to life and limb than to work on a sugar plantation, in part because tobacco picking was less intensive. 
um, you could leave it on the ground. You didn't need to harvest it all and get it to the mill as quickly as possible, you know, in under 24 hours. Um, you didn't need to boil it, right? The, 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 the production process of making sugar from cane uh, requires a ton of energy, kinetic energy, uh, fuel. It requires boiling sugar uh, again and again and kind of letting it sluice through a series of big kind of uh, refining pans uh, and then eventually be, be contained in sort of huge barrels to separate the sugar from the molasses that drips out the bottom. It requires a lot of labor. And so it was the kind of crop that required a substantial, concentrated, very uh, controllable and exploitable labor force. And so it, it was a kind of crop that lent itself to mass enslavement. The first people to make that deadly connection between sugar and slavery were Portuguese and Spanish merchants in the 16th century. But with all the wealth that started circulating around the Caribbean and across the Atlantic came pirates. And that's where England's involvement with slavery really began, with English pirates seizing Spanish and Portuguese ships, loaded either with sugar or enslaved people, and then selling them on. It was really only in the 17th century, first with the founding of the colony of Virginia, um, and then with the founding of the colony of Barbados, uh, English colonies in the, you know, the early 1610s and then in the 1620s, 30s and 40s, that plantations became uh, a more significant part of the English imperial imagination. Um, so Virginia was a tobacco planting colony that began with a labor force of largely indentured workers. But over time, uh, it became clear, as it be, had become clear in, in Spain and in Portugal, and I think the Virginia colonists knew this from the Spanish and Portuguese example, that enslaved African workers, because they had been taken away from everything they knew, they often spoke different languages from one another, they were very far from home, they were easier to control than uh, indentured workers who spoke the same language as the people who commanded their labor, and moreover, expected their indentures to end. Right after seven or three or three or five or seven or 10 years, an indentured worker would become a landowner or at least have the potential to become a landowner. And so slowly, kind of over time, the workforce uh, of Britain's plantation colonies stopped being white indentured workers who were exploited um, and abused and became enslaved African workers who were exploited and abused. And so the 17th century is kind of the moment of transition from uh, uh, a, an indentured or apprenticed white labor force with a time-limited period of labor to a permanent enslaved African labor force. Uh, and then in the 18th century, the demand for sugar in Europe increased rapidly. Uh, the number of white settlers moving to Britain's colonies in North America increased rapidly. Um, the number of enslaved people coming from West Africa or being brought from West Africa to the Caribbean and the Americas increased exponentially and the profits increased exponentially. So the 18th century was sort of the, the boom time for sugar. As the boom in slaves and sugar began, Scottish merchants invested heavily in the Darien scheme, a plan for a Scottish colony in Panama. Widespread investment, followed by the spectacular failure of the scheme, left much of the Scottish lowlands in financial ruin, and this in turn provided a crucial context for the unification of Scotland with England and Wales in 1707. After which, African slave labour supplied the sweetness that accompanied what increasingly became seen as a distinctly British drink, that of tea. But did sugar also make Britain rich and powerful? I think we have this particular image of, of empire as central to the economy of the United Kingdom. This is the historian David Edgerton. 
But in fact, a majority of imports came from outside the empire. And a lot of imports came from countries which were rich. Australia, New Zealand, Argentina, uh, Uruguay, United States, Canada had very high incomes per head. And, and these were the major traders with the, with the United Kingdom outside uh, Europe. So the, the idea that the UK depends on the hyper-exploitation of people uh, th through trade, I mean, it's partly true, but it's, it's not generally true. I mean, trade amongst nations of similar levels of income per head was much more important than trade between the UK and poorer countries. When it comes to trying to figure out exactly how slavery increased British power, there are a couple of ways to think about it. Um, and one of them, which I think has muddied the water, is to think purely in terms of numbers, right? To, to, to try to determine, okay, the sugar trade was X percentage of Britain's trade in the 18th century. Um, that paled in comparison to, say, the wool trade or the cotton trade or the trade in manufactured uh, pottery uh, or, or industrial products. And I think it's clear from that perspective that the trade in enslaved people uh, in, 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 like in, in human beings and the trade in the stuff that, that enslaved laborers produced wasn't anywhere near the majority of Britain's trade, even at the peak of the slave trade. So it's not like slavery and enslaved labor contributed 30% of Britain's GDP or something like that in, in the 18th century. That's not to say that slavery didn't produce immense individual fortunes, as well as smaller beneficiaries. And it's some of those individual stories that Catherine Hall has investigated. When slavery was uh, um, abolished in the Caribbean and Mauritius in the Cape, it wasn't abolished everywhere. It was abolished in those places. And the slave owners received compensation for the loss of their human property. Just to repeat that, it was the slave owners that were compensated. There was never any systematic work done on it to see how many people received the compensation or what kind of money they got. So that's what we investigated and we created the database, the legacies of British slave ownership, which documents the 47,000 claims that were made for the 20 million pounds that was paid by the British government and British taxpayers to compensate slave owners. Now, of course, the, the great irony of that is that the whole campaign for abolition was fought on the basis that it was wrong to own people as property. Nevertheless, it was acceptable to compensate them for the loss of that property, just as you compensated landowners for the loss of their land when a railway was being built, for example. So people were private property of a very special kind, but nevertheless, they could be valued in monetary terms, which is what happened at the end of slavery. So in order to produce the, um, the records as to who should get the compensation, uh, everybody had to make a claim for how many enslaved people they owned and therefore what compensation they were owned. Those records have established beyond doubt that a very significant group of people in Britain, mainly in England and Scotland, got compensation at the end of, at the time of emancipation. 
and of the 20 million pounds that was granted in compensation, almost 50% of that came to those 4,000 people. So in other words, the biggest slave owners were in the UK. In today's money, 20 million pounds is roughly 1.8 billion. So where did it all go? Well, first of all, there's the absolutely explicit ways in which money went into new forms of investment. So railways were important, for example, um, and significant capital went into that. Uh, It also went into the development of marine insurance and banking, merchant banking. These were very important arenas um, developing in the 1830s and, you know, very glad to get some extra capital. One of the really interesting things is how uh, money went to new parts of the empire. So, for example, some of the slave owners and their descendants gave up on the Caribbean. They decided that that was no longer a very productive place to make money. And they went to the new colonies of white settlement, as they were called. So Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. Then, of course, some of the money went into conspicuous consumption. So the building of country houses, the refurbishment of properties. Money went into buying artworks, buying books. A small amount of money went into philanthropy, but they weren't a particularly philanthropic lot. And then, in a way, what I would say is absolutely as important as the economic contribution which was made. The ideas about race and about racial difference, which were circulated by the slave owners and their descendants. So the ways in which notions of racial hierarchy became well established in the metropole. That wasn't something new, but it gets a new influx in the period after slavery. What's significant about that is that as long as slavery existed, then that was a way of justifying racial difference. But once abolition has happened, then on what basis are you claiming that Africans, Indians, etc., are inferior subject peoples? So new legitimations for racial hierarchy emerge in from the 1830s onwards. In fact, ideas, rather than money, are a better way of thinking about the lasting legacies of both slavery and the campaign to abolish it. Slavery helps to build capitalism, and having been abolished, slavery doesn't disappear from capitalism. And all of the ideas about black labor, all of the ideas about white labor as well, and about civilization and about Britain's right to 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 to, to rule um, in the Atlantic don't disappear. In, in some ways, like anti-slavery makes the British Empire more powerful than slavery did. For British abolitionists, it became a moment of transformative atonement. Uh, having abolished the slave trade and then having abolished slavery, you know, three decades later, Britain had shown the world, not that it had, you know, reformed uh, part of its commerce or reformed part of its com- of its colonial policy, but that it had morally transformed itself. And that transformation, you know, became an all-purpose justification for empire in the 19th century. Britain was able to, to say, well, we are the anti-slavery empire. So our interests are equivalent 
to the abolition of slavery. And whatever we do is prima facie abolitionist because we're the abolitionist empire. So if we shell Lagos in the 1860s um, and overthrow the local ruler and install our own sort of client ruler, we can say, I mean, it is partly, you know, one of the, the reasons for the shelling of Lagos in the 1860s was to force the abolition of slave trading on that part of the West African coast. But it was also to give Britain a stranglehold over palm oil. Palm oil, by the way, is a product that will make a fascinating episode for this show. But you need to sign up on Patreon to make that happen. Anti-slavery wasn't hypocritical, right? Like the abolitionists believed that ending slavery was the right thing to do. And they weren't lying about the, the, the earnestness with which they felt that, you know, they, they, believe, they, they hated slavery, but they also understood or believe that they understood that the abolition of slavery proved the superiority of British civilization. And in a kind of theological sense that the abolition of slavery had at a stroke atoned for all of Britain's sins with slavery. So they thought slavery was sinful, but they also thought that, the, that sin was instantly and miraculously forgiven right, in a kind of reenactment of, of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And so consequently, after that moment of atonement, the legacies of slavery were gone. They had been forgiven. They had been erased. But of course, they hadn't been erased because all of the infrastructure that slavery had built was still there. All of the ideas about Black laborers that slavery had insisted on were still there. And it was just a different, you know, it was an argument for a different kind of white supremacy. So, you know, that that moment of atonement does an awful lot of work for the British Empire. Um, and it, it remains a very, very powerful all-purpose justification for British imperial adventuring in the 19th century all over the world. And then there's the material infrastructure that slavery built. I mean, so many people are implicated in this whole process. The banks who receive mortgages and so on, the lawyers who were involved, the trustees... Not everybody who got compensation was actually directly a slave owner. And that enables us to see the way in which this involvement with slavery runs deep into the society. It's not just a surface thing. It's not just 4,000 people. Mm. Because then there's all the industries that were dependent first on the slave trade and then on slavery. So I like to think in terms of the slavery business and the ways in which it involved so many sectors of the economy. And that wealth was coming into Britain long before uh, emancipation, all through the second half of the 18th century and early 19th century. And money going into the building of the infrastructure that made industrial capitalism possible. The roads, the canals, the transport systems, the lighthouses, you know, the formation of banks, these are all critical to the development of capitalism. So with all this in mind, it's safe to say that slavery that produced sugar changed who we are. Tea and the empire that produced it did the same. Certainly, when I started working in this field, domestic history and imperial history were completely separate subjects. And the assumption was that British domestic history was not affected by empire. The colonies were, of course, affected by Britain, but not vice versa. So really, you know, there's now a whole body of work which creates a different narrative, which is about the ways in which uh, the history of empire is totally interconnected with the history of Britain. Things like Victoria sponge cake, Christmas pudding, 
pineapple upside down cake and tea with sugar. All of these things tell us that what we typically see as English is the product of deeply global ties. My husband was Jamaican, and um, one of the things that, I, I mean, does stay in my mind when you say that is, you know, one talk he did when he said, you know, I am the sugar in your English cup of tea. That's it for episode three. Coming up next, we'll be looking at how modern agriculture changed what we eat, and whether climate change means we need to eat less factory foods, or maybe more. The show was made by me, Lewis Bassett. You can follow The Full English on Twitter and Instagram at fullengpod. Music for the show is provided by Forrest DLG. You can find him on Twitter and Insta at Forrest DLG. Thanks to our guests in this episode, and you can find details about them and their work in the show notes. And there's loads of content over at patreon.com forward slash full English. If you sign up as a subscriber, you'll be helping us make new episodes on everything from wine in England to bread riots. Relevant to this show is a recipe for Caribbean tea cakes as well, so maybe go check that out. And that's patreon.com forward slash full English. Thanks so much for listening.